Uh, but I do want to welcome those of you in the room as well as those online and those at all of our campuses. Can we just welcome everybody? If you're new to Northview, we are one church meeting over 12 different locations, and uh, we are just thrilled to have every single one of you with us today. And I'm excited to get another crack at this sermon. I got to be honest with you, last night I walked away from church just feeling so mad at myself. You know when you ever just, you know you could do better? Someone told me, they're like, hey, I, I felt like on a scale of 1 to 10, it was an 8. And I said, yeah, but in my heart, it's a 15. And, and that is the, sometimes the challenge for me. I'm like, Lord, would you help me say it to them the way you said it to me? I feel like sometimes writing a sermon is like building a house from the sky down. And guys, we are going to cover some ground today. Back in the day, Reeboks had some shoes called the pumps. Remember those? Before a game, you'd have to bend over and but you were ready. And I don't know if you have some pumps on, but I hope you came with some running shoes on. We are going to cover some ground. And if you're a note taker, you're going to get some writer's cramp. But good news is this will be online, and you can circle back on all of this. But we are thrilled that you would join us here on Martin Luther King Weekend. And it's, uh, it's a story. It's a legacy that I'm fascinated with. Martin Luther King is just a remarkable individual in the history of our nation and world. He's not only a pioneer and a trailblazer and not only an advocate, he is a man of God. I think it is probably the one thing about his life and legacy that gets overlooked. This was a man of God, and it was his faith that informed his actions. I think it is a critical component to his life and legacy that is being overlooked and unproduced. Uh, and that is something that I think every single one of us as followers of Christ, we can lean into our faith and our faith informs our actions. It, it shapes our logic. And my challenge in this series of bad advice is what would happen if you allowed God's word to shape your logic? If you ran things through the filter of God's principles before you just subscribe to the different things people are suggesting that you would anchor your life to. Have you ever found life just comes with bad advice? And it's learning to pump the brakes and to think critically and to at times even think independently. Sometimes you have to form your own opinion on some things. Otherwise, those around you and the world around us, well, they can kind of sweep us up into some bad logic. Had me thinking about the other day, I was, well, I'm, I'm lazy in my working out right now. Anyone else, you, you want to be in shape, but you're just lazy? And so I, uh, I was like, you know, I'm going to go to one of these nutrition shops, and I'm going to get me a supplement, all right? Hopefully that'll just be like a magical six-pack and a powder or something like that, right? So I'm at one of these nutrition shops, won't say the name of it, and this individual is, I mean, he is strong selling me on a product. And, I mean, he had me. I mean, he's going down the label, and he's explaining what all these ingredients are and, and what they accomplish in the body. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. I pick it up. I buy two because they had a sale on. And so I've got these products in my hand, and I'm sold. And we're about to walk to the counter, and then he made the statement, you're going to love it. This is exactly what I use. And, guys, you're, this is going to be shallow as your pastor. But in that moment, I couldn't help but just do it up and down really quick. And looked at him, and I was like, oh, man, I was sold. Until you said that, I don't want what you have. <laughs> so on our way to the cashier's counter, I kind of had to turn around and be like, yeah, you know, I'm just going to put these back. I am not sold on what you're selling if what you're showing me 
is the byproduct. And church, here's the principle I want to leave you with. Don't buy product without considering the byproduct. I mean, at some point, you just got to pump the brakes and be like, do I really want this? I mean, you wouldn't go to a financial planner who's filing for bankruptcy. And you wouldn't go to a dentist with a busted up grill. And you wouldn't go to a chiropractor with some poor posture. And my goodness, don't let someone speak into your identity, into your purpose. If they are a fully surrendered follower of Christ and if they don't take their cues from God's word, you have to consider the byproduct. I mean, do I want what they're selling? And my goodness, we live in a culture that overpromises and underdelivers. But man, do we serve a God who, in all reality, if anything, underpromises and overdelivers? I mean, he's just amazing. Yeah, come on, bring it. And uh, it's all right. You can make some noise in the church. I grew up with a coach who used to always tell me, "Hey, a quiet gym is a losing gym." And I just believe we have some things to celebrate. Our God is good. He's still on the throne. And whatever comes our way, we have victory on our side. Amen. And uh, so I'm excited. And I'm excited about this message because I, I do hear this tidbit of advice in a lot of our language. In fact, I've said it myself. In fact, I've said it in sermons, all to get down the road in my own journey with Christ and to bump into things in Scripture and be like, oh, that may not be the best advice. And that advice is sometimes we'll tell people, hey, just be yourself. You ever had someone say that? Hey, just be yourself. Well, sometimes that's why the date didn't go well. (laughs) That's why you bombed the job interview. And that's why you didn't get invited to the party. Because you're just being yourself, right? And sometimes it's learning to really assess ourselves and say, hey, I've got some tendencies. I'm rude. Sometimes I'm manipulative, maybe narcissistic. Other times I'm demeaning or overly sarcastic. There are some things that maybe I could change and and maybe I should be careful and not develop an unhealthy loyalty to a former version of myself when God seeks to do more in my life. Church, do not develop an unhealthy loyalty to a former version of yourself. It's not just saying, hey, I'm just gonna be who I am. No, I'm becoming who God has destined me to become. And so it is learning to lean into the possibility that you have been hardwired for greatness and that you have such a tremendous capacity for goodness hardwired into the faculties of your being. And so it's leaning in every single day saying, God, would you continue to introduce me to who I'm becoming? Sometimes what you'll hear is you'll hear people posed with opportunity or challenge and and they'll say, well, that's just not who I am. Be careful. And what I want you to be careful is, is don't sacrifice your purpose on the altar of your personality. Don't sacrifice your purpose on the altar of your personality. It's just learning to realize God will meet you where you're at, but he won't leave you where you're at. And there is a journey he wants to take you on, and so it's saying, hey, who am I becoming in Christ? Who am I becoming in Christ? And one of my favorite individuals in scripture is Peter. Peter has this remarkable journey where he made a lot of mistakes along the way, He was really clumsy in his faith, yet he was persistent. 
He continued to take God at his word and God accomplished remarkable things in him and through him. And along the way, Peter would find himself looking in the mirror astounded by who he was becoming because of the favor of God that was on his life. And I promise you, if you take God at his word, you lean into your faith and you stay committed to the cause of Christ, you will get down the road to discover, my goodness, I had no idea this type of potential was residing within me. But you gotta stay to the course and you gotta trust the process. And there's this amazing portion in scripture and it's hefty. There's a lot here and today's message might be teachy at moments, but, but bear with me, I promise it'll serve you well in your faith. It tells us in Matthew chapter 17, it says after six days, after six days, church, we're gonna come back to that. Jesus took with him Peter, James, John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here if you wish. I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and another for Elijah. Peter was the type of guy, he just couldn't deal with awkward silence. He just had to say something, right? So in this moment, he's like, I don't know what to do, but hey, do you want me to build a tent? I'll build one for all three of you. He goes on to say, while he was still speaking, which I love this, God is so intentional to interrupt us when we go sideways. A bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my son, check this out, whom I love, who I love, with him I am well pleased. Church, I mean this one statement will change your life. Listen to him, it'll change your life. He goes on to tell us, when the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said, don't be afraid. And I love this final statement, when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. My goodness, I pray you find yourself on a journey with Christ where you just get so laser focused, where despite the distractions of this world, you see Jesus. But this is, this is a pregnant verse. There is a lot going on in this verse, and it makes me think of times Chris and I, when we were early on in our marriage, we were balling on a budget which is a cute way of saying we were broke but trying to make it look good. And so we drove all these busted vehicles that had a tendency to break down. And there was a number of times early on in our marriage where we were broken down on the side of the road, flashers on, steam coming from the hood, and we were stuck. And you know those moments where, I mean, you have to coast to the side, right? So what do you do? You, you pop the hood and you go out there to see what's wrong. And there's this time we're on the side of the road. I got the hood popped and I'm looking at the engine I'm like touching some of the hoses and looking at the battery and I'm thinking to myself, I have no idea what I'm looking at. <laughs> you ever been this guy? You ever been this guy? And you look like you know what you're doing, but in your mind you're thinking, Jesus, heal my car. <laughs> Guys, that's what I've done multiple times. I have literally, for my own, I don't know if it's, Dignity, I don't know if it's just me trying to save face, but I have stood on the side of the road with my hood popped, staring at an engine, touching things, when deep inside I know I have no idea what I'm looking at. 
And all I'm doing is saying, Jesus, heal my car. And every single time that would happen to us, I'd get back in the car to find the wiser of the two of us on the phone calling for help. Because a wife always knows her husband's limitations. She just knew right off the bat he's going to go out there and pretend he knows what he's doing. I'm going to actually call for help while he's out there blowing off some steam. But I do think sometimes you come to a passage like this, and you do, you feel like a, well, like an individual like me who is clearly not mechanically inclined, staring at the engine of a car thinking, what am I looking at? But here's the deal. My challenge is not to get discouraged to where you don't do a deeper dive. My, my challenge for you is not to you know, just throw in the towel on your pursuit of Christ, but lean into the possibility that maybe, just maybe, there's a lot here you can learn, and maybe, just maybe, there's something here that could be really profound and impactful in your own personal discipleship journey. Because that is the goal. Church, we exist to make disciples, not decisions. Some of you, you've given your life to Christ, and that's the best decision you could ever make in this life. But it just doesn't end there. Once you make that decision, ultimately, you are committing your life to become a disciple, a fully devoted follower of Christ who takes on the image, the character, and the likeliness of Christ. And I'm convinced one of the best things you can do with your life is to become a disciple for Christ. So one of the best things in church, here's the deal. A church that doesn't disciple will eventually dissolve. That's what I love about our church. There's such a long-standing history for discipleship. And discipleship is that, that journey of becoming like Christ. It's that journey of crucifying your flesh, letting former things become former things, and stepping into what God has next. And this, you know, discipleship, it comes with some change. It even comes with some discomfort. But here's what I've discovered Life is going to come with discomfort regardless of what you do. If you pursue Christ, it's going to come with some discomfort. If you rebel against God, it'll come with some discomfort. And ultimately, you have to choose which form of pain do you want. Which again has me thinking of trying to stay in shape. I'm at the season of life where I'm, I'm just, I'm finding myself in a different season. My metabolism has slowed down and so now it just doesn't happen. I've got to work for it. I also find myself, you know, realizing that my over-the-counter drugs are changing. Before, it just used to be Tylenol and ibuprofen. Now I'm, like, spending time in the pharmacy section being like, this looks interesting. Just grabbing stuff. Like, I don't know. I'm going to try this out. Maybe that, that'll work. But the other day, I was, I was kind of complaining. I kind of fell off the wagon in my New Year's resolution already when it came to working out. Anyone else? You can relate to that? Come on, church. I ought to be the most honest place on the planet. And... I was frustrated because I had spent a week really going after it in the weight room, and then I was just super sore. And this is the question that I had to wrestle with, and that is this. Do I want the discomfort that comes in a weight room, or do I want the discomfort that comes in a waiting room? If I don't manage my health, they, there will come a different form of discomfort down the road. And again, life, well, it gets uncomfortable for all of us. It's up to you to decide which form of discomfort is going to serve me best. If you become a follower of Christ, there will be some discomfort. God just doesn't take the weights out of the gym. They're there to make you stronger. They're there to build your character. They're there to fortify your life. Also, you can accomplish his purpose. But it's going to come with some change. Church, 
Are you willing to allow God to change your life? Are you willing to let go of an unhealthy loyalty to a former version of yourself and step into who God has destined you to become and who he is really trying to entice you to become in the days ahead? And ultimately, here's the deal. Whatever you're not changing, you're choosing. I mean, there are things in every single one of our lives that we all know. You don't need a sermon to tell you, and you don't need someone in your life to point it out. There's just something in us that we know that needs to change. And if you're not willing to change it, ultimately, you're choosing it. Now, I do believe that you have to draw a distinction here because when you start talking about this, it kind of begins to support in some people's mind what they think church is. Some people think church is a behavior modification program. And church is not a behavior modification program. And I am not a babysitter for adults. If anything, church is a debt elimination program. It's saying humanity was carrying a debt that was racked up by the sins and the brokenness of our nature and our God showed up and he paid the bill. And now we have freedom and relief and peace in Christ. There's a radical difference between religion and the gospel. And religion focuses so much on behavior where the gospel anchors everything in grace. Here's one way of saying it. Religion says change and you can join us. Some of you, you went to that church, were raised in that church. Some of you were sold that kind of thinking. But the gospel says join us and you will change. I'm just telling you, the longer you hang around this Jesus and the longer you just expose yourself to the things of God and surround yourself with the people of God, something in you will begin to change. And church, here's the deal. If you're not a Christian, we love and are thrilled that you are here. And you can belong long before you ever believe or behave the way we do. But I promise you, you hang out here long enough, God will begin to change some things in your life. That was certainly the case for Peter, and I promise you, that'll be the case for you. But along the way, you have to allow God to call you out on some things. I mean, is God able to call you out? Peter got called out all the time. And if you tune your ear to God's word, and if you just tune your ear and develop a sensitivity to the Holy Spirit in your life, you will find him calling you out. And there are three things, three primary ways in which God called Peter out. And the first one is, is Jesus called Peter out from the group. He called him out from the group. Sometimes it appears as if God has preferential treatment. When in all reality, my wife always says, it's not that he has preferential treatment, it's that there's, he has parental treatment. A good parent recognizes the different skill sets and abilities and seasons of life that their kids are in. And so sometimes opportunity is dictated by that. And so it's not him saying, hey, I, I like this one better than that one, but it is recognizing the stage of their development and what they're ready for. I think Jesus just recognized that there was a hunger in Peter. This guy, he's just willing to take me at my word. There's an appetite, there's a devotion, there's a deeper connection. What you have to understand is God doesn't have favorites, but he does have intimates. He, just, he, he doesn't have favorites, but he does have intimates. He recognizes, hey, this one, this one comes with a different connection. I mean, this one is leaning in. This one's ready for what I have next. And so at times you would see 
Jesus call him out. Initially, he calls him out from a boat when he's there fishing with a bunch of other fishermen. Sometimes he would call him out to be one of his disciples and be a part of the 12. Even from the 12, he calls him out of the 12 to be a part of the three. And even from the three, at times he calls him out just to be alone. He called him out from the group. And maybe you find yourself in a season where you've developed some codependency. And maybe God would call you out from the group to de develop a greater dependency on him. I love the first time Jesus meets Peter. Aaron's brother meets him, for, uh, Peter's brother Aaron meets Jesus first, and he runs and gets Peter, like, hey, you gotta meet this guy. And scripture tells us this. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, which the first thing you should do when you give your life to Christ is tell somebody. If you don't develop that pattern in your faith, you'll never get to a point where you ever share your faith. Just develop it early. He goes and tells his brother, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Check this out. And Jesus looked at him, which raises the question, which is more bizarre? The fact that our God pays attention to us or the fact that we at times ignore him? It says, Jesus looked at him and said, you, check this out, are Simon, but you will be called Cephas. Which is interesting because these men were living in a day and age where they kind of straddled the line between two worldviews, and that was the Hebrew and the Greek. And what is interesting is that word Cephas is both a Greek word and it's a Hebrew word. And so in this moment, Jesus calls Peter three different things. He says, hey, you're known as Simon. So first off, hey, this is what you're known as. Right now, people know you as Simon. But Cephas in Hebrew, it means Peter. And you will be known by Peter. But if you trust me, in the Greek, Cephas means the rock. And eventually, you'll be known for that. I mean, what happens in your faith is you pursue Christ and you go from, hey, I was known by this. But in some profound way, he brought me to a point where now I'm known for this. I was once known as Simon. Then I became Peter. But my legacy is now the rock. That he built something upon my life. And I think Peter would sit down to coffee with you and he'd say, guys, listen. You have no idea what you are forfeiting when you develop an apathy in your faith and you don't lean into the possibilities that God has more in store for you. You have no idea what you are forfeiting, just going through your faith casually and lackadaisically. He would say, hey, lean in. Because at times he will, he will call you out and he will just put a purpose upon your life that seems so much greater than anything you could comprehend. And I know when you talk about that, when you start talking about, hey, God seeks to do exceedingly, abundantly, more than you could ever ask, think, or imagine, well, that seems overwhelming. In fact, it seems to come with some pressure. It kind of makes me think of this, which guys, I've already practiced this, so don't worry. Show of hands if you think I'll make it across. Show of hands, go ahead, raise your hands. Some of you believe in me. I know what some of you are thinking. It's probably too early to lose our backup, right? The good news is I just got some of you to pray for the first time. But here's the deal. I can make it across this, so you just hang on tight there. Anyone nervous? Show of hands. <laughs> yeah, I'm terrified. I'm going to come down. 
But here's the deal, and here's what grace does, okay? Grace takes the beam off the ladder. In church, now show of hands, who thinks I can walk across this? It's the same beam. Just a different elevation, but now this is like, this is easy. Like, I can spin on this. I can do all this stuff. I can, right? I mean, look at me. You don't think I could have did it there? Ten feet, and you go from being terrified to now we're all on the same page. I believe you can do it. But church, that's what grace does. Grace, it takes the pressure off and something you didn't believe you could do and something others didn't believe you could do suddenly becomes something you do almost blindfolded, almost instinctively. Somehow you find the ability to do something beyond your comprehension. I'm about to have an asthma attack up here. Grace, it, it takes the pressure off. I mean, running by yourself, that's a race. But running with God, that's grace. And I just want you to develop a commitment to your, to your faith and to your Savior to say, I run with this guy. I trust him. I know he has my best interest in mind. And somehow, in a way that I can't explain, he will give me the ability to do things I never thought possible. But I can't forfeit my purpose on the altar of my personality. So God, whatever you want to call me out on, call me out on it. So sometimes he'll call you out from the group. Other times, he will call you out for his glory. And that's what Jesus did. He called Peter out for his glory. Which had me thinking about this conversation I recently had with a lady. My family, we love Disneyland. Show of hands if you like Disneyland over Disney World. All right, some of you need to go to California. Our family likes Disneyland. I see this lady and she's wearing a t-shirt like this. I was like, oh, I love your t-shirt. My family loves Disneyland. When did you go to Disneyland? And she said this. She said, I've actually never been. Some friends of mine went to Disneyland. They bought me the t-shirt, brought it back as a souvenir. And that one conversation just stuck with me. It had me thinking, I wonder how many Christians are walking around with a souvenir faith, saying they've been somewhere they've never really been. I mean, they've never gone on that journey with Christ to say, hey, I'm going to dive deeper into the things of God, and I'm going to discover more of his work in my life, and I'm going to have an experience for myself. And this moment, my goodness, Peter has an experience. James and John, they have an experience, and they see Jesus in a new light. He's transfigured before him, and they see him in a way they've never seen him before. And my challenge today, and where I feel like I dropped the ball last night, is I didn't help people fully comprehend the magnitude of this moment. This passage opens your eyes to the greatness of our Jesus. And here's the thing. If you don't see Moses, you can't see Jesus. So hear me on this. If you don't fully understand who Moses is, what Moses did, and the role he plays in the community of faith you won't fully appreciate all that Jesus has done. Moses was this great leader, this liberator, this lawgiver. Goes up on the mountain, and the nation of Israel is in the wilderness wandering. They just came out of 400 years of slavery. And these individuals didn't know how to live a free life. 
And so God imparts the law to Moses. Moses comes down and he begins to share the law, which was ultimately the standard of God. And it was the standard of God that exposed the sinfulness of man. It raised the question, who could ever live at this standard? See, up until that point, without the law, some people thought they were better than they were. It's like recently someone said, hey, are you a good basketball player? It's like, well, it depends. What court am I playing on? If I'm playing with some six-year-olds, I'm the best you've ever seen. But if I'm playing with some NBA players, I'm horrendous. When you're just comparing yourself to a faulty world, well, you don't look so bad. But when you compare yourself to the holiness of our God, suddenly the gap is, it's pretty eye-opening. Who could live at this standard? So in this moment, when you have Moses standing next to, to Jesus, it's almost like a tip of the hat. It's almost like Moses, who himself would stress out over this standard, who is going to live out a perfect life. And it's as if Moses is having his own type of graduation service with Jesus before he would go to the cross. It's as if Moses is saying, you did it. You lived a perfect life. He lived a perfect life. I think his perfection goes overlooked. Guys, think of how impressive it is for an individual to be perfect. This Jesus of ours, he's perfect. And then in addition to that, if you don't see Elijah, you can't see Jesus. So Moses was the lawgiver. Well, what does Elijah represent? Elijah is the most notorious prophet in scripture. And all throughout the ages, throughout the Old Testament, centuries upon end, individuals from all different you know, walks of life and different regions, people who were disconnected, never met each other, they made remarkable promises. And they articulated these prophecies that came with extreme clarity and specifics. And over the ages, this list of prophecies would compile and it would compile and it would compile. And the question became there, who is going to check the boxes on every single one of these prophecies? You know, in Scripture, and the conversation is out there, that there's upwards of 436 prophecies, 56, sorry, 456 prophecies in the Old Testament about Jesus. Now, some conservative groups will say, well, it's actually about 360 prophecies, which is one of those weird church debates. What the debate is, is over kind of semantics, if you ask me. It's like if I were to say, hey, God gave me a word and I am prophesying that in two years, a man who is eight feet tall is going to walk into a Kroger's on a Tuesday and walking down the dairy aisle, he's gonna slip and he's gonna hurt his back. The question is, is that one prophecy or is that eight prophecies? I mean, there's a lot of specifics there. The fact that it's gonna happen in two years, that's pretty specific. The fact that the guy's gonna be eight feet tall. The fact that it's gonna be a Kroger on a Tuesday down the dairy aisle and he's gonna slip and the fact that you know he's gonna hurt his back. I mean, are those eight prophecies or are those one? So don't get hung up in weird church arguments. Whether it's 300 or whether it's 450, it's a lot. And there's been all these different groups, economics groups, scientific groups, Harvard, Yale, Oxford, you name it. All these groups who've come together and say, hey, what is the probability 
that this Jesus would fulfill all of these prophecies. And so they started out and they said, hey, let's just look at eight prophecies. What are the chances that he just fulfilled eight of them? And here's what they said. The likelihood of him fulfilling eight of these prophecies was one to the 10th to the 17th power. Which I didn't even know what that word number was. It's 100 quadrillion. In other words, you have a better chance of winning the lottery in multiple states on the same day than Jesus just fulfilling eight prophecies. They took it further, and they're like, all right, let's just, let's just say 48 prophecies. What's the chances that he could fulfill 48 of the 400? And they said, it is 10 to the 157th power. Guys, I don't even know that word. <laughs> Un quinquagentillion. When have you ever said that? Which raises the question, why'd they stop at 48? And here's why. In the scientific community, anything over 50 they deem as impossible. They deem it as impossible. I wrote this article, and there's things in the article that I'm like, you just gotta hear it for yourself. It says, after they finished the study, they submitted the figures for review to a committee of the American Scientific Affiliation. Upon examination, they verified that his, the calculations were dependable and accurate in regard to the scientific material presented. And what I love is one of the leading professors at the end, he makes this statement in the presentation. Any person, any person who rejects Christ as the Son of God is rejecting a fact, a proof, uh, a fact, Proved perhaps more absolutely than any other fact in the world. Let me read that again. Any man who rejects Christ as the Son of God is rejecting a fact. Proved perhaps more absolutely than any fact in the entire world. Is that amazing? And that's only 48, not 456. Guys, this faith is not as fragile as you think it is. My goodness, some of you need to get some confidence in the God that you serve and stop waffling in your faith. At some point, he's awesome, he's on the throne, he is who he says he is, and I'm done tiptoeing around my faith, and I'm done being shy about what I believe. My God is on the throne, my God can change anyone's life, and he is the real deal. Be confident in your faith. It's just recognizing it's not as fragile and some of you, you're skeptical about this faith. And I'm just telling you, don't take my word for it. Do your own research. You would find that there's not a leading voice within the historical world, the forensic world, you name it, that doesn't validate. My goodness, this man lived the life he said he lived. And there is a lot of historical credibility in the word of God. Stand firm in your faith. So in addition to that, if you don't see Peter, you can't see Jesus. If you don't see Peter, you can't see Jesus. Jesus, I mean, Peter represents a really profound thing in this moment. So Moses is the lawgiver. Elijah is the prophet. Moses, uh, Peter, the first pastor. Here's the deal, and if you're a parent, this is something you can tuck away, but what gets rewarded gets repeated. This is the problem within our culture. We celebrate the wrong people. 
And what gets rewarded, it gets repeated. And what gets rewarded, it gets repeated. And the question is, is why? Why did Jesus reward Peter? And I think what it tells us is that Jesus wasn't after perfection. He was after persistence. I think Jesus looked at Peter and said, I, I trust this guy to lead my church because he is a living example of somebody who is far from perfect but someone who is persistent, someone who's willing to take me at my word and someone who is willing to allow me to pull out the potential that I've deposited in his life. I mean, Peter, he represents what can happen when someone fully surrenders their life to Christ. And I think Jesus is like, that's why I want to lead my church. Because I want someone to model for others. If you just fully surrender your life to Christ, you'll still make mistakes. You'll still come up short. But God will do remarkable things in your life. That was Peter's story. And guys in the back, I'm gonna jump to the next point, and that is Jesus called Peter out for his garbage. Called him out for his garbage, guys. And listen, I, I think something in our world is we are losing our coachability. We're, we're losing our coachability, and if God can't speak into your life, who can? And he called Peter out, said, hey, there's some things in your life that you should change. I'm not trying to come down on you, but and it's not that God is trying to even be hard on you, but God is hard on the things that are hard on us. Hey, if you would just get that out of your life, you would find yourself flourishing. He called him out for his garbage. And it makes me think of that statement after six days. Well, what happened six days prior to the Mount Transfiguration? Jesus was predicting his death. He was telling the disciples what to expect. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. To which Jesus said, Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. I mean, so six days before Peter has this exhilarating, catalytic moment in his life, six days prior, he comes up short. And six days prior, Jesus calls him out on some things. And what I love about it is six days later, Jesus doesn't hold it against him. And I think some of you, you're holding on to things that God's not holding against you. And some of you are assuming God's holding out on his grace, so now you're holding on to your shame. Do not hold on to your shame when you serve a God who's not holding out on his grace. You ever amazed by the turnaround time? The, the turnaround time of grace. It is remarkable. And it's just saying, God, would you call me out on some things? There's things that I can do better, let me know. And here's the deal. Just because you don't know any better doesn't mean you can't do any better. So God calls some things out in me. And really quickly, three quick points. One, if God can't correct you, God can't protect you. If you can't tell your kid, hey, don't run into the street, don't be shocked if they get hit by a car. If God can't correct you, God can't protect you. In addition to that, if God can't uh, correct you, God can't direct you. Right, like sometimes we get so negative about some of the principles and the commands and the rules in scripture. But guys, God's boundaries for your life are God's blessings for your life. 
And sometimes it's saying, God, would you help me develop some parameters and clarify the path also I can go further faster in my relationship with you? Would you direct me towards greater fulfillment and into my potential? And lastly, if God can't correct you, God can't select you. It makes me think of playing time in youth sports. Guys, coaches want to win just as much as the players. And so if your kid's not playing, there's a reason why they're not playing. I used to coach high school basketball, and I'd tell parents before the season started in a parent meeting, hey, some kids won't play. Some of you, you have a good kid, but they're not a good player, and they won't play. And some of you, you have a good player, but they're not a good kid, and you won't play for that reason either. And maybe, just maybe, what would happen if you humbled yourself before the Lord and you just said, God, is there anything in my life that I need to focus on Also, I can earn more playing time in the game of life? God, put me in. God, you can speak into my life and you can coach me. And God, I pray that you select me and you position me for greater things. And I think Peter just trusted Jesus because he knew his heart. And church, here's the deal. Those who know God's intentions, they trust God's instructions. Those who know God's intentions, hey, I know his heart. And if you're assuming God's main agenda is to comfort you, his instructions won't make sense. But when you understand his main agenda is to change you, his instructions make perfect sense. So again, where are you at in your faith? Where are you at in your grace? And do you have the ability to bounce back even though you come up short sometimes? See, I don't think the question is, can, you get over your uh, can God get over your mistakes? I think the real question is, can you get over your mistakes? I mean, can you bounce back? Six days later, Peter doesn't take his ball and go home. He just says, hey, I'm, I'm gonna dust myself off. I'm gonna get back up. I still trust him. And then he bounced back in his faith. I'm going a little long, but you gotta hear the ending on this. I grew up playing the game of basketball and there was always conversations about a person's jumping ability. And the two terms that we always reference were a person has hops and a person has bounce. So a person who had hops was a person who had the ability to jump high. But a person who had bounce, well, they had a quick second and third jump. Like some people could jump well, but they needed like a whole running start to get off the ground. But other people, they, they just bounced. The moment their feet hit the ground, they bounced back up. The, these were the great rebounders on the team, the Dennis Rodmans. They just kept springing to action. As you would probably guess, I didn't have either. No hops, no bounce. This was a frustration for my dad, so a lot of times my Christmas presents looked like this. <laughs> Son, we're going to get some bounce. We got you these shoes, and you're going to go run some bleachers, and we're going to help you jump higher so you can bounce back, right? And I just thought, man, what would happen if we got some bounce in our faith? God, I can bounce back. I'm going to come up short. Life is going to throw some things at me. I'm going to navigate some circumstances, but I don't throw in the towel. I'm past the point of no return in my relationship with God. I'm all in for the rest of my days. So God, I can bounce back. And what would happen if we started thinking of church almost like a trampoline? This is a place where people just bounce back. I grew up in the 90s where our parents were getting away with murder. We didn't have pads on the springs. We didn't have the cute net around it. If you fall off, you fall off. We used to play this game, crack the egg. It was always fun when you'd get a little kid on the trampoline because you could just launch them, right? Shoot the kid up in the air. 
I remember kids getting on the trampoline and my brother and I being like, hey, let's bounce this one. And what would happen if that kind of became our thought process as a church? Well, we just showed up and we seen people from all walks of life showing up. Some going through a hard time in their marriage. Some going through a crisis in their career. Some coming off a season of, you know, just battling depression. Other people just battling a relapse or whatever it may be. And what if we just developed a posture of, hey, I'm going to bounce this one. And I'm going to help this person bounce back. I'm going to help this person bounce back. And church, this is a place where anyone and everyone can bounce back by the grace of God. Amen. This is a place where we can bounce back. One of the first things you learn on a trampoline is how to land on your butt. And scripture says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. And some of you in your faith need to learn to land on your butt. Though weeping may come in the evening, but joy comes in the morning, right? Man can't live on bread alone, but the very word of God, right? You gotta learn to land on your butt. My God is great, my God is faithful, and I can bounce back in my faith. And some of you, you're taking too long to bounce back. It's time to bounce back. It's time to get serious about your relationship with God. It's time to go all in. It's time to fully surrender. And it's time to be a devoted follower of Christ in the world that desperately needs agents of change who bring about hope in a fallen world. Amen. Let's be those people. Amen. Well, I'm a long-winded preacher. Would you stand to your feet so I can pray with you? Heavenly Father, God, we just thank you for your goodness, and God, we thank you for your might, and we thank you for your presence at work in our life, and God, we thank you for your grace that allows us to overcome challenges and empowers us to do things beyond our comprehension, and God, it gives us an elasticity in this life that somehow helps us bounce back even when we get down. So God, we just ask for your work to continue to take place in every single one of our lives. With heads bowed and eyes closed, Chances are you've never given your life to Christ and you're discovering in this moment this Jesus is the real deal. He's better than I thought he is. And with heads bowed and eyes closed, we just want to give you the opportunity to give your life to Christ. So if that's you, with heads bowed and eyes closed, on the count of three, would you just slip your hand up so we can pray together? One, two, three. Go ahead and slip your hand up. Outstanding. Anyone else? Amazing. Anyone else? I know there's people online. and Maybe you would put in the chat, I'm making the decision to follow Christ. If you raise your hand, pray this with me. Say, dear Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your son to die on a cross for my sins. Today, I give you my life and I ask for your forgiveness. I'm choosing you as my Lord, my Savior, my God, and my King. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Church, can we celebrate just a number of people giving their life to Christ? All right, church, we're going out with the shout of let it be on the count of three. One, two, three, let it be. Enjoy your week.